0: More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. I don't think I need to spend very much time chronicling what's going on in the world today that probably got you to the point where you are watching this interview. But when I think about all of these events, you know, one of the things that's really palpable and noticeable to me is that whenever there are atrocities or various kinds of negligence committed by our government, and mainstream media journalists are supposed to be there to act as a a compass, as a kind of calibrator. And when they're not there, as they haven't been over the last couple of years, others need to step up and step in and act as that moral conscious for us. And um, whether that's independent media, citizen journalists, philosophers like myself, um, artists, poets, thinkers of any kind. And today I'm with one of the best of them. And I'm so honored to be here today with Toby Young from the UK. He is editor in chief of the Daily Skeptic, founder and general secretary of the Free Speech Union, which is a nonpartisan public interest body that aims to protect Speech rights. He is associate editor at the Spectator and the author of QPR Substack. He's a graduate of the University of Oxford and has written for Vanity Fair, The Daily Mail, and The Daily Telegraph. He's also the author of the 2001 memoir, which might be what you know him best for: How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, which became a film starring Kirsten Dunst, Jeff Bridges, and Gillian Anderson. If I if I'm got that right, I believe. Yep. So I'm just absolutely thrilled today. Toby, thank you so much for taking the time to, to bridge this distance across the pond, <laughs> literally, as people say. And, and thank you for joining me today.
1: That's a pleasure, Judy.
0: Can you tell us, it's been such a big week. I don't know when people will be watching this, but we're recording it just the week after Queen Elizabeth II passed on. And it's it's not like it wasn't epistemologically expected. But it seemed to be a shock to a number of people nonetheless. And we've had the accession of King Charles. And at the same time, uh, the election of the new leader of the Conservative Party, which we've just been through in Ontario as well, in Canada as well, and, and the election of a new prime minister, Liz Truss. Can you give us your thoughts on these big developments? Is this going to bring in some kind of change for the UK, for the world? And is that change likely to be good or bad in your view?
1: Um, yeah, I think that the honest answer, Judy, is it's too early to say. Mm. Um, the the um, succession of Liz Truss, if we can start with that, um, I think many people in her campaign team Hope that she will be the prime minister. The conservative wing of the Conservative Party always hoped Boris Johnson would be, um, uh, but he ended up disappointing a lot of us. Um, so I think a lot of people are hoping that Liz Truss will be, you know, our first genuinely conservative Conservative prime minister since Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that every Conservative leader and every Conservative Prime Minister, apart from Margaret Thatcher, um, has ended up disappointing me. So I'm wary of investing too much hope in Liz mm-hmm. Truss. And um, the first few things she's done suggest that she's more likely to be a second Theresa May than a second Margaret Thatcher. So she imposed um, a an energy price cap which was um, a pretty significant intervention into the marketplace and will cost the taxpayer over a hundred billion pounds. Not a very Thatcherite uh, first move. And um, she also has appointed um, uh, two fairly unexciting ministers to head up the education and culture portfolios in her cabinet, um, uh, which suggests she does, she's not going to lean into the culture war. Uh, which is, I I think, something some of us hope she might do. Um, But, you know, um, uh, she's only been Prime Minister for a fortnight, so let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Um, The Queen's death, um, uh, I think, did come as a shock to many people, um, even though, as you say, it was something we've been expecting. Um, But I think uh, people don't realise quite how much the Queen means to them uh, until she dies um I think a lot of us feared that um her death would signal uh the end of an era uh, that she has been sort of she she stands for for various values like um self-sacrifice, public service, duty, patriotism putting your country first um and I think a lot of us feared that um with her death would come um the 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 end of those sorts of values meaning something or meaning as much as they do in British public life. Um, and it, she's been sort of serving as a as a bulwark um, against the incoming woke tide. And um, the um, uh, is it accession, I think it's the right word of um, Charles, um, uh, might signify a sea change. Um, Partly because he himself embraces the green agenda. He's a big enthusiast for net zero. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, he apologized to Commonwealth leaders at a Commonwealth conference in Rwanda in August for Britain's involvement in the slave trade. And I think, you know, uh, my fear is that he's going to think that the monarchy needs modernizing and that involves uh, going on a, an apology tour of Commonwealth countries, apologising for you know uh, the British Empire, Britain's history of colonial exploitation and involvement in the slave trade. And, um, uh, uh, and you know, he thinks the way to placate the monarchy's critics and the way to snuff out burgeoning Republican sentiments um, in places like Australia and in the Caribbean mm-hmm. is, to, is to kind of get on his knees, abase himself before these firebrand woke political leaders and kind of beg for forgiveness. And as we know, uh, in the free speech union anyway, the way to placate, that there isn't any way of placating, you know, woke mobs, give them a finger, they'll take a hand. Um, If you apologize, they just detect weakness and go for the jugular. And my fear is that um, in the mistaken belief that, that this is the way to purify the monarchy, detoxify the brand, he'll just end up um, not making any new friends and alienating all the people that could potentially have been his strongest allies. Um, but having said that, um, uh, so far the signs are quite good. Um, he has he hasn't he hasn't put a foot wrong really uh, mm. since. Um, he's uh, he's reaffirmed his commitment to being head of the Church of England. Um, he hasn't mentioned net zero once, as far as I know. Um, and uh, so you know let's give him the benefit of that out too, let's hope our fears aren't realised and he puts some of this, um, uh, some of his um, political hobby horses behind him now that he is the monarch.
0: It's interesting I watched his speech to uh, Parliament, was it yesterday morning? I'm trying to think and it was it seemed to me to be quite reverent um, but unremarkable but maybe it's the time for that. Maybe.
1: Yeah, we want him to be unremarkable. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's when he wants to be remarkable that he starts making mistakes.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. It's interesting to think about the the role of uh, the monarchy as being a symbol for a kind of endurance and non-progressivism and um non-postmodernism if we can sort of uh, compound those words together because whether our world just seems to me to be in a kind of freefall in terms of meaning and whether that's because of the fallout from postmodernism or whether it's because of social justice progressive politics or whatever it is i mean even when we've seen the politicization of science what that that sort of says is that science itself isn't meaningful it's the political ideology that can package it, that that's meaningful. So it makes me wonder, you know, is there still room for ritual? Because the monarchy from from my cheap seats in one of the Commonwealth countries is is so much about ritual and symbolism. But when I watched um, the queen's coffin being carried into, is it St. Gilles Cathedral? And then now King Charles and Princess Anne, Prince Edward, Prince Andrew stood the, is it called the vigil of princes? Uh, by by their mother's coffin. And that seemed to me to be like the acme of a kind of ritual that our world is so, finds, has a lot of hostility to these days, or, or, or has lost a lot of meaning for us. Is that significant to you, that we're still holding on to that kind of ritual in the world? Yeah, I think
1: one of the encouraging things about the way the British people have, by and large, responded to the death of the Queen and, you know, the events of the past week or so, is that um, clearly the royal family, the traditional values the royal family stands for, the Queen stood for, um, Mm -hmm. these kind of rituals which are at the centre of British public life, um, they clearly mean an enormous amount to vast numbers of people. I think it's easy to be perhaps too pessimistic about declining support for those kinds of values, those rituals, those institutions in yeah. today's world, partly because their critics make so much more noise than their defenders. Um, but when something like this happens, you're reminded you know, just how enduring a lot of these values are and just how meaningful a lot of these institutions and rituals are to many, many people. So I think it's uh, it's, it's you know if you're a conservative, it's it's quite comforting um, to to have witnessed you know um, a country in mourning over the past week or so. Um, it's 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 a reminder that there is you know a silent majority out there, and the fact that they're largely silent most of the time doesn't mean that they don't feel very deeply and strongly about the country, about the Queen, about what she stood for, about the royal family, about our constitution and our traditions. Uh, and that is, um, that is, I think, uh, encouraging.
0: And the extended timeline of the mourning period just entrenches that in a way, doesn't it? That our world is so fast-paced and we have instant information and we just feel like we're always behind. And yet the period from the Queen's death to her funeral will be about 10 days, something like that. And just to have anything, uh, just to allow that kind of protracted space for for your emotions and for the country to gather in support of anything is quite remarkable these days, I think. I have to ask you, what is your view? I, I know some of your views because I've seen your interviews and read much of your writing, but what is your view from the outside of what's going on in Canada right now? Especially our prime minister, our, you know, his particular, his governments, particularly draconian COVID measures, his response to the truck convoy, travel restrictions, seeming unwillingness to budge from not just the COVID narrative, but his economic standpoint, his environmental standpoint. Um, and now we have the election of a new conservative leader. What, what does all this look like to you from the outside? Is Canada an embarrassment? Is, are there any seeds of hope that you see?
1: Well, I I, um, I was very disappointed that Justin Trudeau and his party managed to hang on um, mm-hmm. after the last general election in Canada. Um, in my general view, is that when left-of-centre progressive political parties embrace woke, hard-left identity politics, as Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. has done, um, they generally... Um, Hemorrhage support, particularly amongst their traditional working class voters, mm-hmm. um, and we've seen that happen. You know, we saw that we saw that happen in twenty sixteen with Trump's victory. Um, we saw it happen here in twenty nineteen when Boris and the Conservatives trounced Jeremy Corbyn and um, the Labour Party, uh, and we've seen it happen across Europe too. Um, generally speaking. Um, uh, left wing identity politics is kryptonite to traditional working class voters and they tend to switch in large numbers um, to right of centre parties um, you know um, which 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 uh, stand up for the more traditional values of flag faith and family Uh, and so it was disappointing when Justin Trudeau seemed to buck that trend but I think he's living on borrowed time And um, uh, I'm very encouraged by um, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I'm slightly hesitant to say his name in case I get it wrong. How do I pronounce it, Julie?
0: Well, I think it's Polièvre, it's French. yeah, but I, I'm open to criticism on that point. You know, on that point, it's really it's really interesting. A lot of people have a lot of hope you probably heard he won 68% of the vote in a landslide and there was a real concern. Oh, even as recent as maybe two or three weeks ago that Jean Charest who actually used to be the leader of the our Quebec liberal party that he would take the leadership and it was just thought well that would just be you know that would be the end and so there's a lot of hope placed in Ever he's he's an incredible orator I would say Justin Trudeau is not I would in my view he's manipulative he recites the same he's good at rhetoric but I wouldn't say he's a good speaker or good orator, and I think Polly Everett does have that capacity. But, you know, people ask me often, they say, well, what do you think about him? Is he the savior that we all need? And I, and I my answer is often, very rarely are political leaders saviors it can happen i think it's possible but they're rare and then the cynical part of me wonders is it possible to reach that level of politics these days without having some connection to the global elite or whatever you want to call it or is that just being too cynical too um too conspiratorial
1: well you know all politicians campaign in poetry and govern in prose and We've seen it many times in this country, you know um uh candidates for the leadership of the Conservative party saying all the right things and making all the right noises during the campaign, only to tack to the centre and seemingly get captured very quickly by mm-hmm. the establishment uh once they become prime minister um so as you say, we should be a little bit wary of investing too much hope in. Pierre, but um, by God, he made the right noises during his... Yeah,
0: leadership. he says all the right things. I agree. <laughs>
1: Everything he said. I mean, he and I was thinking, gosh, if he was the leader of our party, I'd certainly vote for him here. Um, He's
0: highly quotable.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I like the fact that he he was so unequivocal in his support of the Freedom Convoy mm-hmm. absolutely about opposing vaccine mandates. Um Uh, very rude about the WEF. I loved it when he said if any members of his cabinet went off to Davos, they needn't come back because they wouldn't be coming, they wouldn't be joining his government again. Um, So yeah, he says all the right things it's manna from heaven as far as i'm concerned but um, he may let's hope he doesn't abandon too much of that agenda well
0: we've needed the gates of heaven to open for a while and drop something on us so maybe this will be the time you know let, let's talk about covid for a minute and i don't want to dwell on this because i don't think it's the only thing that's going on in our world and i don't i certainly don't think it's sort of the nexus of evil that many people claim it to be because there are so many other foundational factors that have, that have gotten to us to this point i think but but one thing I can't help wondering these days is, does the truth always come out? Will the truth come out? You take someone, I mean, you just posted, I believe, on your your Twitter page, how Michelle Walensky was just saying that, you know, actually, there there wasn't safety coverage of of the vaccines until March 2022, which was several months or maybe a year later than, than they claimed that it was. Um, Peter McCullough, he's been talking about for quite a few months now. Now he's in Texas, which I think the culture is quite different from where I am and maybe where you are, but how the official COVID narrative is crumbling and how there's this sort of tension among healthcare professionals because they know that something is terribly wrong and the narrative has, has to shift. But it makes me wonder more broadly, historically, I mean, does the truth have a way of working its way to the surface eventually or is there some sense in which we just might never know or never uncover all of the factors that got us to this point
1: yeah i think it's um i think uh the truth is a powerful ally Mm. Um, but it's usually um not enough Mm -hmm. i mean if you you, you, and i'm sure that um in due course, um, uh, the truth about um, the lockdowns, um, the vaccines, uh, will come out Um, uh, and, um, you know, in spite of the enormous efforts the people who um, have profited from uh, the pandemic have made to suppress the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm sure in, you know, and the fact that they have made this effort and have enlisted the help of various nation states, various international agencies, big tech, to and sort of embarked on this crusade to um, fight um, uh, the what do they call it the um, uh, the infodemic of misinformation and disinformation about the pandemic by which they. Broadly speaking, mean the truth oh,
0: the, themselves. Um, they are.
1: Are. <laughs> but the fact that they've gone to su- the fact that they they have gone and still are going to such enormous lengths to suppress the truth suggests that they are frightened about what might happen to mm. them um, if it comes out. So that's encouraging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's kind of to the so the more we see
0: them dig in, their heels in, the more confident we can be that it's revelation but I, time or something.
1: But I, I don't think it'll be. I, I mean, I don't think. Um, you know, it, it, to give you an example of how it doesn't, you know, it, it's not it's not always enough to have the truth on your side. Um, think about, you know, how um, uh, communism in various forms has you know, survived the um, unbelievably poor track record of communist countries in the 20th century. You know, I mean, from 100 million deaths downwards, um, you couldn't really ask for clearer, more stark proof that um communism is an, an absolutely catastrophic ideology which immiserates um uh, every country it's been tried in but still there are some people that cling to the faith um which is um you know in in the face of in the face of this overwhelming evidence that it doesn't work so truth is helpful but it it, it, it it's not sufficient i don't think to defeat our enemies
0: It's very interesting that you bring up that point. I mean, communism, it sounds like a great idea. You're communal, you're working together, you're sharing. We're taught to do that from a very young age. And now, you know, collectivism comes along. We think the collective, the group, I wanna be part of something, I wanna be part of that. And then of course, there's all the evolutionary psychology, psychological explanations to show well why we are, you know, we have this tendency, many of us to be deeply tribal. I don't think I got that gene, but anyway, you know, (laughs) and it's interesting, I came across the article. I don't know if you will have heard of this or. Or know of it, but Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, wrote an article, I think it was in 1944 in the Atlantic, and he said in that article, and I just saw it yesterday again, never were we freer than under German occupation in France and I thought that was so interesting and when he elaborates a little bit you see his reasoning is that but it's when you join forces with other people to and create this kind of unified resistance that you feel your freedom and I think by that he meant well I'm I'm assuming but reading between the lines that that you feel your agency in the world and I just thought that was so interesting because there's been so much blame going on the past couple of years. It's the fault of the CDC and Fauci lying to us. It's the fault of big government. It's the fault of global politics. It's the fault of woke ideology, whatever it is. But ultimately our freedom is just undermined to the degree that we solely blame others for for our faults. Right? I was just talking to someone yesterday about whether or not you know, they would knowing all the harms and the lack of justification, whether they would take a third and fourth booster. And her answer was, well, I don't want to, but I will if I'm told to. And so I just wonder you know, I was just speaking to a group of students a week or so ago, and I said, this will go on for as long as you let it. And the solution is very simple. It will stop the minute that you say no. And when you mention communism, I mean, hasn't that been true of all of these attempts at imposing communism? They went on for, there was always a period where it sounded great to the people. I think of the thirties in, in, in Germany and, and other parts of Europe that they were They were on board with with what was happening. Do you think we're going to see a rising up of people? Do you think people are going to assert their agency, realise that they're free, realising that they're losing their freedom every day and just say no? Or or is that a bit of a pipe dream, do you think?
1: So one of the depressing things about the past two and a half years has been the realisation that even in the supposedly freedom-loving west vast numbers of people possibly even the majority of people seem surprisingly willing to surrender mm. freedom in return for security um and um i guess i you know I, I don't know whether that's because they were deceived partly because you know the threat posed by COVID 19 was wildly exaggerated and there's quite a lot of you know, survey evidence that people generally did wildly exaggerate the risk that COVID-19 posed to them and their families and their communities. Mm -hmm. And perhaps if they'd had a more realistic idea of just how much uh, risk um, uh, COVID-19 posed, they would have been less willing to surrender some of their liberties. Perhaps it was partly because um, they were only asked to surrender them temporarily you know, not in perpetuity, that they seemed willing to, they thought, you know, thought it, so. <laughs> you know you give up freedoms for. I mean, initially it was two weeks to flatten the curve, wasn't it? Um, uh, and there was a kind of, you know, boiling frog element to it all. Um, uh, and then there was a kind of sunk cost. We have to lock down again because we've locked down three times and um, we don't want to render those sacrifices meaningless. So let's sacrifice again. But, you know, so it was sort of the way in which Populations were gulled into acquiescing to this um, uh, surrender Um, uh, uh, might suggest that psychologically, had, had 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 the proposition been put in a kind of more honest way, people would have been less willing to make that trade. But, you know, maybe that's wishful thinking. Maybe, you know, as people become more comfortable, as there are fewer serious threats to their comfortable material life. So they do value security, safety, um, well-being, absence of psychological harm. Maybe they do begin to value those things much more highly um, than their basic freedoms. I hope not, but, um, you know, we'll find out over the next few years
0: is a massive failure, isn't it? I mean, as someone who used to teach reason and critical thinking to university students who are supposed to be our, our best and brightest, and now you see what the the outcome of, of all of that or the failure of all of that has been that it turns out when, when we make decisions, we don't really make it on the basis of reason or evidence, but the coercion and nudging and pressure and all of these things are and, and the desire not to stand out are so much more powerful. How, how much of this do you think has seeds? in our educational failings. I know education is something that's very meaningful to you. You're a parent, I believe. You, you've written about your, your children in some of your articles. And I think you're a bit older. I'm a parent too, but she's younger, not in the school system yet. But I think about this a lot. You know, How have our failings in the educational system over the last several years, but probably more like decades, because the people who are making decisions now are adults, right? And, and, and how have we failed our young people and educating them and how do we get this back on track?
1: Yeah, well um, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've read um, The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Mm -hmm. Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt in which they talk about the um, free speech crisis uh, in American universities and the emergence of safe spaces and trigger warnings and Policy warnings against microaggressions and snitching portals and all the rest of it—everything that's turned, you know, um, uh, American campuses into kind of little microcosms of East Germany, circa 1976—and um, th- they 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 attribute this largely to the fact that um, uh, parents and schools have failed to prepare children properly. For the challenges that the world is likely to throw at them, they've essentially cocooned them in cotton wool, protected Mm -hmm. them from any kind of danger, so their children have not been equipped with the ability to assess risk. They don't know how to deal with challenge or conflict or adversity, and they just perceive it all as a kind of existential threat, and that's why they. Prize things like safe spaces and trigger warnings and why they interpret any intellectual challenge to their kind of narrow core of orthodox ideological views as a kind of uh, a threat to their emotional well-being because they just they just haven't been taught how to cope with any kind of conflict or challenge. Um, and uh, so he thinks the key, you know, Jonathan and Greg Lukianoff think the key to overcoming this crisis on, in American universities, and sort of more widely, uh, cancel culture. Um, how to resurrect um, free speech and rejuvenate the public square as a place where different and controversial ideas are discussed in a good-humoured way um, is, is, is to improve Parenting, improve schools, trust children more, um, encourage them to be a bit more self-reliant, expose them to a little bit more danger, but in a kind of controlled (laughs) way,
0: and and, and, uh, I think- That's the house on fire, but only the kitchen and be prepared to put it out
1: quickly. (laughs) When I I first read the book, Julie, I thought that they were, you know, um, overplaying the kind of psychological dimension to um, mental culture on university campuses and a lot of it is just driven by you know authoritarian woke ideologues the high priests and priestesses of the cult are essentially totalitarian in nature. They want to shut down free speech because they want to. They don't want to argue. Uh, they don't want to engage in debate with their intellectual opponents. Um, uh, and th- they were underplaying the political dimension to this um, and overplaying the psychological dimension, partly for kind of political reasons. If they could persuade students that it was in their own psychological interests, in their interests of you know preserving their own psychological health, that they should learn how to deal with challenge better and become a little less obsessed with protecting themselves and cocooning themselves. They were trying to make an argument that would land. With kind of students, um, uh, and they knew that if they made a kind of political argument that you've just bought into this unbelievably authoritarian, totalitarian ideology, that wouldn't land. Um, but actually, I've slightly revised my view since the since the pandemics happened. I think, well, maybe they were onto something. Maybe an entire generation um, uh, has just become unable to deal with risk of any kind and they just catastrophize the moment a kind of risk emerges and are willing to surrender almost everything to protect themselves from this risk even if it isn't much more dangerous than seasonal flu. Um, So you know um, uh, I've sort of come around to thinking maybe they were right and maybe the solution is better parenting and better schooling
0: just like that, no problem. It's, you know, one thing in in the classroom that became very clear to me is it's in some sense, and I, I would qualify this, you know, carefully, but in some sense, learning isn't that hard if you want to do it. But training apathy out of someone, I don't know how you do that. And so we have a culture of students and and by that i mean you know very much like little s students you know all of us who who want you know who really need to keep learning throughout our lives in order to go through life in order to make good decisions when we vote for our politicians good decisions about our finances and relationships and all these things that um the fact you know to get someone to care deeply about something is an art, I think. It's an art, as you say, that that comes from parenting. It's an art that, I mean, never did I think that, I quote Hillary Clinton, but her whole, it takes a village thing, I'm not sure it takes a village, but in some sense, it takes a cultural societal infrastructure, doesn't it? To to support people in thinking that, um, in thinking that things matter and that if they exert some effort, uh that can have some effect on the world and i think that's a core belief that somehow either through negligence or through intention we we've trained out of our young people and uh, you know it's funny hearing you speak it's very reminiscent of what walt whitman had to say but in the 19th century because he was he was lamenting the state of education and the culture in america and he said you know long after he's he's, he's re- referencing the enduring values of the Greek and Roman cultures after their empires collapsed, but it's the ideas that linger, and so he's encouraging, you know, the American people to try to hold on to their, uh, hold on to, and also develop. Their ideas and basically encouraging people to read, right? And very few young people now I talk to they say I don't really have time to read, and of course they don't have time to read because they have all their social media and their tiktoking to do, so they don't have time to just read books, right? But it's it's really interesting. I I want to um ask just you something. Yeah, sure. on. I
1: think I just want to sound a note of caution, which mm. is um in the. I was I originally got very involved in um, education when my children um, were about to go to school, um, or at least the eldest one was. And when they were about to come to, when they came to secondary school age, and I ended up, cut a long story short, I ended up setting up, or helping to set up for what you'd call charter schools, what in America are called charter schools, we call them free schools over here. Um, and, you know, was very involved in education policy, thinking about, Um, uh, how to improve and reform our own public education system Um, and uh, so that was my life for kind of 10 years but then I became very interested in behavioral genetics and started reading around behavioral genetics became very interested in the work of Robert Plowman who's the kind of doyen of behavioral genetics he's American but he's based over here Um, and met him a few times got to know him a little bit and um, he 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 has produced really overwhelming research evidence that um we wildly exaggerate um the importance of the environment of nurture <laughs> instead of nature when it comes to how kids turn out and how they behave um what they're what they're uh where they where, on the kind of five big personality scales where they Rank. Um, uh, Parenting, schooling, really much less important than most people think it is. Um, Mm. And insofar as it's important at all, he distinguishes between the shared environment and the non shared environment. And the shared environment are things that, you know, um, siblings in a family might experience together. So parenting, the kind of school they go to, the non shared environment are things they find out for themselves, their own kind of unique environments they create for themselves, the the, the friends they make at school, that kind of thing. Um, And insofar as the environment does um, affect how you turn out and affect your life chances, uh, and whether you're likely to end up at a good school or in the criminal justice system. Um, it's the non-shared environment much more uh, is much more important than the shared environment, which is ve- which is almost negligible in the impact it has on, on on how children turn out. So, from a parent's point of view, that that's quite reassuring because it sort of lets you off the hook. Doesn't really matter. <laughs> A really deadbeat parent, you know, if you neglect your children or you abuse them, um, then uh, of course that will affect. Have to be
0: really bad. If,
1: if you do the bare minimum, you know. You, they'll basically anything you do over and above that. I mean, it creates a nice environment for them as they're growing up, and they'll be happier for that period of time. But parents, I think, um, imagine that you know, unless they unless they obsessively kind of helicopter parent and look after their children and buy them music lessons and get them extra tuition and make sure they get into good schools and all the rest of it they think that that, that'll have a huge impact on how they turn out according to plowman and his research no they're 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 kidding themselves
0: well that's (laughs) interesting because um, that's enough (laughs) Yeah, I I was going to say that uh, anecdotal evidence certainly supports that because often you can take, you know, children or young people who are uh, very similar to one another, you ask about the backgrounds, their backgrounds are very different, you take children who are very different from one another, they the you know, in the same family, they had the same sort of upbringing, so it's it's very interesting, Um, you know, sort of on that topic, but in a more economic vein, I was very interested to read your article about your trip to Iceland, And the massive um, inflation we certainly are feeling it in our country. I honestly don't know how working families are making ends meet now. You go to the grocery store and it really seems like items are going up a dollar or two every time you go and our our gas prices are a little bit lower now but I mean for months and months people have have struggled to uh, you know to put gas in their cars and the housing crisis and you know can you tell us a little bit about this will be maybe sort of our last uh, conversation but can you tell us a bit about what you were seeing Iceland in Iceland and where do you think we will be in five years across all of these different spectrum of society
1: well um Iceland is one of the most affluent countries in mm. Europe the um average wage per capita in Iceland is way higher than it is in the United Kingdom it's probably higher than it is in Canada and um Prices in Iceland are unbelievable, uh, in restaurants and hotels, um, you know, tourists. Um,
0: uh, you said a $9 cauliflower or something, yeah. or a nine pound pint of beer. <laughs> so you can right. or beer. You can have cauliflower or beer.
1: But um, so I didn't see much in the way of um, economic deprivation in mm-hmm. Iceland. But if you, you know, I, I, I was in Newcastle which is a northern city, a city in the northeast of England. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, just driving through Newcastle to go to the railway station, um, and um, the it was like a scene out of Mad Max. I mean, there were kind of it was about sort of I don't know, um, 5 p.m. and there were kind of hordes of kind of drunken young men, kind of uh, um, uh, staggering across the street, kind of spilling open beer glasses, Um, uh, people huddled in doorways, women wearing virtually nothing, kind of as drunk as the young men. Um, And it was it was like a kind of scene from a kind of post apocalyptic. (laughs) And it was like, Jesus Christ, this is supposed to be, you know, um, the industrial heartland of Great Britain. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was pretty depressing. Um, I think if you, you know, if you go, if you go outside, the kind of um, urban centres. Um, it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's the United Kingdom or France or Belgium or Germany. You realise the extent of social and economic deprivation um, uh, in the kind of um, uh, extended peripheral areas, um, and it's it it, it it you do kind of think that um, the people in those places are clinging on by their fingernails and. Um, if energy prices get any higher, if the cost of living increases by any more, um, if they have to pay more in rent, um, uh, if public ser- if the quality of public services declines even further, then you're going to have a kind of riotous population on your hand on your hands, and you're going to have kind of widespread civil unrest. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's too pessimistic. Um, but um, and uh, you know um, may, maybe maybe if the war in Ukraine ends more quickly than we'd anticipated, and gas prices begin to fall because Russian gas comes back online in Europe, um, and maybe if Liz Truss lifts the fracking ban and develops nuclear energy, um, mm. uh, and uh, you know inflation begins to decline, um, maybe maybe things won't be as bad as some people are predicting. But um, it's not too difficult to imagine a scenario in which we see um, outbreaks of widespread civil unrest um, uh, you know, across the Western Hemisphere, which is a, a depressing prospect.
0: It's interesting, though, isn't it, to think that, I mean, as things get worse, you would expect a kind of revolt, a kind of civil unrest. But also, as things get worse, we've been more and more worn down over time psychologically and have fewer resources that are psychological resources that are needed to challenge or rise up against those we perceive to be the oppressors or the originators of 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 these economic crisis but um are you generally are you an agnostic about what the future will hold the next few years are you trying to be hopeful is it taking a lot of effort to be hopeful
1: <laughs> well th- things things i mean I, it's hard to imagine after The two and a half years we've just had, it it would be worse. (laughs) Get any worse, Um, uh, and you know, um, I think there is there is some evidence of political renewal um, in Mm. in in, you know some countries. I think um, I think you know um, uh, I'm optimistic that Justin Trudeau will be consigned to electoral oblivion at the next election in Canada. Um, I think it's unlikely that the Democrats are going to do well in the American midterms. And I think it's probable Mm. um, that the Republicans will win the presidency in 2024, whether it's Trump or Ron DeSantis. Um, And uh, people are predicting that the Conservatives will lose the next general election in Britain, which is likely to be in 2023 or 2024. But I don't think that's inevitable. I think Liz Truss might do enough to hang on. If you look at the state of most left of center parties, they have for the most part been captured by these kind of crazy, woke, identitarian minorities. And as I say, for the most part, that is electoral kryptonite. Um, we've seen the, um, you know, the defeat of the um, center left coalition in Sweden at the most recent election, only um, last week in Sweden. Um, so um, there is uh, there are, I think, some signs of political renewal um, and Mm -hmm. a pushback. And I think, um, you know, initially, at least in this country, um, support or opposition to the lockdowns and associated COVID restrictions um, didn't split along party lines. There was more or less universal assent, um, no matter what your party political preference, but that's, but people's attitude to it has begun to fracture along party lines. And certainly both the leading candidates in the recent, Conservative leadership election we just had came out against lockdowns and said they've been opposed to them all along. They've just you know hadn't hadn't had, they just they just they just been shut down when they'd raised their objections in cabinet you know two and a half years ago. Um, uh, and um, you know in America the Republican Democratic split is largely um, reflects the split between people who are pro and anti lockdown, pro and anti masking. Uh, I think that's probably true in Canada as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you know um, to a certain extent. Bad though the two and a half years have been and bad though the assault on our freedoms has been, it has galvanized the right. Um, and I think that, that that you're beginning to see signs of political renewal and signs of hope. So I'm not I'm not as depressed as I might be.
0: That's good. I, I'm glad to hear you say that, that you're seeing signs of unification among conservatives, because in our country, at least we have just gone through, well, really 30 years, I would say, of the, cons- the conservative Party or parties dividing themselves. We had the Reform Party. We've had the um, the People's Party of Canada. I mean, just division, division, division. And the Liberals never do that in Canada, and and they've been able to win. And then they form a coalition with our New Democrat Party. Um, but you know, th- Toby, thank you so very much for joining me today. I would never have chosen, if given the option, to go through the last two years. But if it had to happen, I'm so glad that I get the gift of getting to speak to brilliant, kind, thoughtful, dedicated people like yourself. So thank you so much.